The Jewish Trauma Network provides education, guidance, and inspiration to individuals and families suffering from trauma to help them create a better life of connection and self-actualization. I'm your host, Dr. Yosef Tropper, and my greatest wish is to bring calmness, hope, and success to your life. Welcome, everybody. It's so nice to have you here. This is a very important um, podcast on defining and addressing the trauma of parental alienation. Alienation, And I am really honored to have with me UC Light and Bryson Greaves. Um, and I highly recommend that if you're going to love with what you hear as far as content and as far as understanding of this topic, um, the way I met them was uh, hearing them on many, many podcasts and checking out their website. So I'll leave you that information in the uh, in the show notes. So let me introduce each of them and then we'll get started. UC Light is a CA licensed marriage and family therapist practicing since 1999 in San Diego County. He has helped clients heal from addictions, suicide ideation, complex relationship trauma, including couples and families, minors involved with probation, domestic violence, and high conflict custody cases. He obtained his AAMFT approved supervision status in 2010 and is a certified emotionally focused therapist and supervisor and integrates internal family systems and EMDR into his treatment. He is the owner of a new growth counseling in Carlsbad, California, and you could reach him and Bryson on this website, newgrowthcounseling.com. And again, we'll put that in the show notes. Dr. Bryson Greaves, PhD, is a marriage and family therapist in Southern California. He is adjunct faculty at the University of San Diego and Antioch University, where he teaches evidence-based practice, research, mythology, and systemic relational practices in psychotherapy. In private practice, Dr. Greaves works with individuals, parents, and families in court-involved cases. Some of the most intense stuff. He has worked closely with colleague UC Light on the development of their high-conflict custody and court-involved therapy program and approach to effective clinical work in these challenging situations. Welcome, UC, and welcome, Bryson. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's an honor to have you with me. So because some of our um, listeners are lay people, wonderful lay people, and some of them are therapists, I think it would be helpful if we kind of just start with a basic overview of what is parental alienation or any other uh, definitions or explanations that that you want to kick off. Um, UC, I, I think we had talked about you giving us a, a kickoff on that topic. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having us on. Um, it's interesting because parental alienation it just in the English language is something that you can observe, just like you can observe political alienation and all forms of alienation that are rampant in society right now um, that we read about in headlines and so on and so forth. And um, and so I think it's a helpful term. The problem is it's not a crime. There is no legal code that I'm aware of anywhere that says if you are committing these behaviors that you are a criminal now. So it can't be something that you can attack someone for uh, that I'm aware of um, in terms of a legal, like here's this legal problem, um, nor is it a clinical diagnosis. You can't open up the, the DSM and look anywhere for parental alienation as some kind of a syndrome. And so I think it's a problematic term for those of us who are in therapy and anyone who's working with a therapist, because when therapists start using it, they can get in trouble because if they go in front of their own um, licensing board and, and they're asked, what are you providing treatment for? And you say parental alienation, like, well, so show me where that is in the diagnostic manual. The therapist has a problem. And, and many people that I'm aware of in this field think that that's problematic, that the field lacks this. Um, I think what we wind up doing, though, at New Growth, and I know the way Bryson, I think, because we're trained as what we call system therapists. 
probably first and foremost. So I don't think that Bryson and I think of individuals just as individuals. We think of individuals as people inside of systems. And you really can't understand their thoughts and motivations and feelings or experience until you appreciate the position they fit in that system. So a child is a minor, a dependent. They don't have authority. They can't act. They can't give consent and so forth. So um, we, we tend to look at individuals in that way. And so when we start to think of family systems and we start to try to understand what is this parental alienation, we think of it in terms of coalitions, triangulation, terms that are familiar, I think, to people who think systemically. And, and you're probably going to pick up throughout the show that that's coming through how we think about just about I think everything related to these cases is you must understand the systemic view. So we tend to think of children who are dependent and who are developing and don't have fully functioning brains. We think of them as dependents upon a caregiver to whom they're attached. And there's like this biological thing that happens there and that's emotional. And that when one of those parents has strong, strong negative reactions to the other parent and that child gets sucked into that emotion of that parent, that child can't separate easily from that emotion. They become confused by it. They become dominated by it. In, in metaphoric language, it's as though a spell has been cast upon them because there's an emotional intensity that the child has to deal with and they can't get away from this parent. It's not like they can say, you know, you're really a problematic person. I don't want to be a part of your life. No, they depend on this parent and they always have since birth. So the child is in this massive bind because they're feeling this real thing. And um, of course, the other parent who is targeted by that kind of vitriol and hostility feels the child turn against them. And that right there is how the alienation happens and is why it's such a complicated idea. You, how do you legally define that that's going on? You know, that's a very complicated thing because it's not something you can touch. Um, and, and clinically, though, we diagnose that as a parent-child problem, and our theoretical base tells us that it's, it's coming from the enmeshment of a child into a parent's hostility about another caregiver, which triangulates them against one parent and towards another and causes a, a coalition that's ultimately unhealthy for the development of that child. Thank you. I know that's that's a lot of information to digest, but as I'm listening with my <laughs> clinical ears, there's you you, you brought up a, a tremendous amount of points. Um, and and Brayson, I'll, I'll just kind of check in with you in case there's anything you wanted to add. Um, yeah, I think... Um, I, th I think I'm constantly... You know, I think UC did a wonderful job here this is a discussion he and I have often about like how do we even talk about this uh in a way that sort of squares up the the legal binds that are sort of outside of the scope of psychotherapy how do, how do we stick in our lane as a therapist um but I think one of the things that I think about uh to help define the term alienation even though I don't think we use that clinically and we rely on other clinical language to describe kind of the phenomenon. But in order to understand what alienation is as a concept, um, I think it's it's nice to sort of talk about what the sort of other side of the coin is, which oftentimes we, we talk about as estrangement. So 
pretty simply the way I think about the difference between like estrangement, and I define that as there is some um, objective behavioral relational interaction between the parent and the child that ruptured the child's bond or trust with that parent. Like something actually did happen. Uh, the parent drank too much, got a DUI, that it, you know didn't show up to the kid's piano recital and injured the child by their absence. Like something actually happened. Then there is alienation or a, a version of clinical terms that sort of feed into that umbrella term that um, basically kind of just in common language, I would say is largely propaganda. Okay. So, so what happens in alienation is there's like a propaganda machine that is being constructed that is ultimately causing an influence on a child's perspective, belief system, understanding of the world, understanding of parenting, but it's but it's not directly within the child's experience. It is it is a story being told that is like pulling in, you know, very loose fitting details that that don't really amount to fact, and then helping a child believe that that is a reality, um, and the only reality, as opposed to sort of a, a much more complicated view of parenting. Uh, you know. Parenting's really hard. Parents make mistakes. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, alienation is kind of the story that is being told and reinforced over and over and over again that seems to sit outside of the child's personal experience, but is, but is a construct that is being formed for them that is serving a different purpose. So that, so I think that's where let's say alienation or this phenomenon occurs versus parents did something that injured a child that needs repair. Yeah, I appreciate that. So let me kind of just summarize because um, I'm hearing a very fascinating component that I never really conceptualized this way. You kind of have three main aspects. You have optimal systems of a healthy family dynamic, and then you have the opposite extreme of, um, I think the word you used was um, estrangement or you know distance or, or injury. And then you have kind of this continuum in the middle of parental alienation where there's this artificial thing that's creating that um you know damage that isn't necessarily there um you know in order to kind of help everybody understand could i could i do like i have like 10 questions i want to ask you guys where i know each one of them could be a podcast by itself but like can we do like kind <laughs> of like a quick fire response just just to kind of give the you know the, the listeners just a little bit of an overview because there's a very complex topic is that okay absolutely yep. okay i'm gonna shoot away so the first <laughs> First question is, what are some of the what are some of the most classic symptoms you see that represents? Okay, I I suspect that maybe there is some parental alienation here. Um, you see, maybe we can go back and forth. I'll I'll say a couple, and then maybe you see can add a couple. So so one yeah. is um, what I would call a totalizing point of view by a child that there is one perfect parent and one absolutely horrific parent. So they basically are unable to hold the complexity of, of parenting, humanity, whatever you want to call that. They have a totalizing point of view, all good, all bad. Um, the, the other is um, what some researchers on this topic called weak or frivolous details about traumatic events. So uh, they'll say, you know, they'll ask you, oh, I, don't, I, I never want to see my mom again. She's a really bad person. She hurt me. 
and then you ask, you know, sort of more in-depth questioning and you start to get this feeling and this sense that this, this child has no coherent, consistent story about what happens. And oftentimes I find when you ask them details session to session, uh, they have a really hard time telling you the same story uh, between session one, two, three, four, uh, even when you're asking about the same event. So basically they, uh, that might indicate it's not really in their experience. They're trying to recall a story uh, with details that are not actually something they feel. So that's amazing. Couple. Thank you. And you see, I'm going to ask you the same question, but a little bit different. And that is sometimes in my office, I, I find it hard to differentiate between just a slightly dysfunctional person or somebody that's angry at their, at their ex um, or somebody that just isn't a very functional, good parent versus when there's kind of malicious intentional, or maybe it doesn't have to be intentional, but parental alienation. How do you differentiate between bad parenting and bad blood, which obviously is going to be present in a lot of, you know, marital yeah. or post-marital versus, you know, a clinical concern? Yeah, 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 for sure. The, the big thing, and this is going to be heady to some, is that it's about the parent's sense of themselves at such a deep level that if they don't defend or attack whatever their position is, then it shows up something about them. And that's what's really at stake. So that so that the child must agree that I am the good parent. And if you don't, then the child is going to have such a major problem with that parent. And the child knows it. So they align with it. So it's kind of like, it's not just bad parenting. It really is like, the, it's like the parent is asking the child to vote and to vote them in as the only good parent and the other parent as bad. That's the key, key thing right there. Thank you. you look for that and then everything else is a symptom of it. Yeah, that's well said. And again, you guys are obviously experienced, unfortunately, you know, with this. Um, my next question is, what are some of the motivations that that cause people to want to create alienation or force or feel forced that they have to alienate? No, I, let me piggyback. Okay. I don't believe that's how it works. I, I don't believe some. it's not a, a strategic thing where somebody says, hmm, how can I best achieve this goal? Geez, I know. I, I think I'll do it this way. I, I think if you see that, it's not parental alienation. It's something else. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen that something else. I think what alienation is coming from is, like I said, a parent is actually quite fragile. Uh, this is this is the thing people don't want to talk about too much. But one of the parents, both of them actually, in, in many cases, are both quite fragile, and their very personalities are wounded due to their own personal development. I see this in almost all these cases, and that's not any kind of a judgment. It's just to say that they haven't reached a stage of maturity yet where they're allowed to make mistakes and be not so good, and yet not lose their attachments to others. They they haven't gotten that kind of security in their heart and in their mind or their soul, however you want to speak about that intangible place, they 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 truly don't know. And th that sort of reveals something about their fragility. And the fact that they're looking for a child's vote to sure that up says an awful lot. So I don't think that they think about doing this. I think they do it to survive. Thank you. That's well said. And that's that helps bring it out as well. My next question is, um, do you only see parental alienation cases that have to do with divorce and separation? Or do you see that in quote unquote intact families? Sorry, I've, I've got, I have a new computer that's doing um, 
uh, <laughs> hand gestures for me. Uh, it's joining um, our podcast. I know. I don't question, <laughs> Thumbs up, thumbs down. I don't know what it's doing. Um, uh, your question about about does this happen um, maybe outside of divorce cases? Um, I think in short answer, I would say uh, my my experience says yes. Um, However, there's a structural difference, you know, the, the, in, an, in a, let's say, an intact family, as dysfunctional as that might be, as argumentative or conflictual as that might be, you know, the, the child is living in one house. So, so I see these in family therapy cases. I've seen this in family therapy cases for years where the conflict between the parents results in children being in, in, in a bind or in an inner turmoil where kind of as UC's describing, they're sort of tasked implicitly or explicitly with deciding who the good parent is, you know, which which parent is more equipped, which parent is more permissive, which parent is more structured, whatever it is that the child bears this kind of burden to reflect back to each parent that they are somehow good. And when parents require that from their children, or are in conflict with each other that puts the child in a position where the, the kid has to deliver that, um, you can see kind of the, the brickwork of what would become high conflict custody disputes in court very early on, uh, I think, in, in family therapy cases. And it, and it has much to do with what you see just described. This, we call it we look for three things, parentification, triangulation, and enmeshment. And, and maybe we can talk about those clinically. But when those are present, it could be an intact family and you could see some of the same symptoms with the one structural difference and maybe the one um, intensifying variable, which is courts. You know, uh, once the courts are involved, attorneys are involved, uh, you know, right. the, information uh uh I, I don't know if i can say bad words on your podcast but the but the information shitstorm starts yeah absolutely. Uh, and and then um at that point things get highly Someone has to sanction it and that's what happens and then and then it just becomes profoundly more expensive and profoundly more contentious um so that was actually my next question do you feel that lawyers, therapists, judges, I know it's a very general <laughs> question, are equipped to deal with these type of cases from your experience? Joseph, I got to be honest. Uh, there's a part of me, and, and I, I can be a real social justice kind of a guy, um, that would love the opportunity to sit down with, uh, with policymakers, people who are empowered to change systems, so that the courts and the um, the attorneys could have some standard of care, as, as we call it, mental health. Out here in San Diego County, we have domestic violence court and we have drug court. And you only go to those courts if you are dealing with certain social emotional issues. We know that DV um, is usually limited to intimate partner. Like people who are doing DV are not going around beating up lots and lots of people in society. That's a different thing. So we yeah. have a court system for that. And if you want to do the mandated therapy for that, you have to take a very rigorous training that's certified by the probation department. 
it would be so cool if the court systems could adjust and add another kind of like specialty that's informed by mental health and informed by relationship ideas that come from mental health yeah. and create a system where judges and lawyers all understood that there really is this thing this this thing that we're calling parental alienation that has no legal definition that people have been debating and fighting for however long uh is a real thing and we have to have a name for it that's like not shaming but is also not going to allow people to work a system and spend like five hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars to decide who's the good parent i mean that's what's going on in, the, in court like who's the good parent your honor will you please rule this is this is exactly Who's the good parent, child? Will you please rule? These these folks who are stuck in these systems are basically insisting on litigating that argument. And the courts seem to be ignorant of this as, as a serious problem for them. These people do not follow court orders and courts don't throw them in jail for it. What the heck? These, yeah, these well, courts empower children and parentify them. Go ahead, 15-year-old. You get to decide. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so, yeah. Justice can, coming out. Can, can I say one thing uh, with uh, regard to your last question um, about <clears throat> sort of competency across across multiple fields? I I think I choose to believe uh, there is a lot of competency. I think there are challenges um, which we basically define these cases as competing agendas uh, as a therapist um, and maybe if I speak for the competency of the field and our training um, there's a lot of things that we are trained to do uh, that, that basically amount to trusting your client is giving you accurate information uh, you know in these cases um, especially in ones where there are court involvement whether that's minors counsel evaluator parent coordinator whatever it is um with court orders stipulations um you know whatever these are harder as a therapist to maintain this uh position that we would often take with an individual client that is basically collaborating on a goal setting agenda and basically, okay, what do you want to get out of this? And the therapist works to align with that client goal, at least at least is maybe weighted in that direction and then challenges that goal uh, over time. But in these cases, I would say, one, you're going to get, you know, at least three people with three different goals. And the therapist, if I just focus on the competency of the therapist, if they basically go, the default setting is, um, well, let's just run the code that we always run in therapy, which is like, let's listen to the client and achieve what the client wants. If they run that code with the uh, with a child who is in the middle of, of a right. conflict, then they are basically aiding and abetting parentification of a child. They're, they're basically doing the same thing that the parents are doing, which You're is- just feeding into the problem. Yep. You're just, you're just running a parallel process. You're just doing the, it's isomorphic. You're doing the same thing. You're just basically saying, well, kid, your parents don't agree. So let's ask you, what do you want? And then you just basically hang this burden around their neck of 
deciding who the better parent is, deciding who is more right. equipped, deciding who they have better time with. Uh, and so I think there's a probably a unlearning and relearning necessity for therapists, whether you're working in the conjoint reunification setting or with an individual, be it a parent or a child in one of these situations. The fact that there are competing agendas means you cannot just align with one person's perspective regardless. That, that's a different type of case. And yeah. I think that's what we run into as blocks to progress in the conjoint therapy often. And you can run into that block with an attorney who has one client that they represent, uh, with a judge right. who's bound by dealing with the evidence in front of them and not maybe the nuance. Or an individual therapist who's saying, oh, well, the kid doesn't want to participate. What are you, you going to do? You're going to force a kid to do it. And our response as a therapist is, no, but there is a court order. I mean, the court is saying they have to do it. So we are basically saying you need to comply with your court order, and we're here to help do that. But we're not working against a court order. And, right. and that um, is not a position I think most or many therapists take, particularly if they don't have experience in these cases. Well said. Got it. Yeah. Um, what is the prevalence of parental alienation? Like I, I've been involved with, you know, treating clients like, you know, who, who have these type of symptoms for probably the last decade. And I've seen estimates for, you know, zero. <laughs> it doesn't happen, which I don't agree. I've seen people that say it's child abuse and it's very frequent. And I, and I, I actually ascribe to a lot of that argument. There is an abusive aspect to it. Um, but I've seen, you know, estimates of 20%, 35%. You know, one in five divorces have it, one in three. Those, those seem like pretty high numbers to me. I'm just curious, like, what your experience has been. If, if there's a way to put it in I don't, I don't think that we've quantified this, this beast, this syndrome in a way that you could measure it. Because I, I feel in healthy marriages, there are sometimes playful moments where parents ask the kid, who's the better parent? And they're I laughing agree. and right so this is not something that's foreign to family life it's it's maybe more prevalent with personality disorders so i think if you look at what is the dsm distribution of personality disorders in the general gotcha. population and then figure out how many of them get married and and have problems i think that's your number right there because this is this is something that everyone engages in on some level and and there's triangulation all the time in parenting and well said. <laughs> It's just not all unhealthy, so I don't think you can quantify this one easily. Yeah. that's that's a very that's a very healthy way of looking at it, and and that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to kind of pivot to some of the main focus I that I have on on in this podcast, which is um, impact on children, um, especially in a, in a religious manner. So, just what is the impact that that you're seeing uh, with children that go through parental alienation experience? Go ahead, Bryce. Yeah, many, many things. Um, and I, I think if I just so just speak developmentally and not try and get too heady. Um, high anxiety. I mean, they're, they're in a bind. They're basically in what we would call a double bind. They're, they're kind of lose lose. Uh, you know, um, they are, I think, at risk for having increased anxiety, um, even even in peer relationships, social relationships, because they're gonna they're gonna have a difficulty understanding an inner sense of self, like a both 
if we talk about locus of control, like they're, they have some uh, developing control over their life. Uh, could, you, could you elaborate on what the double bind is like? Damned yeah. if this, damned if that. Uh, so they're in the bind of, let's say, having to select a better parent or or reflect back to the parent that they're good. And if the parents are in conflict, if they do that, let's say to parent A, and they say, oh, you're the best parent ever. And then they go over to parent B and they say, um, well, you know, parent A is the best parent ever. So that makes you not the best parent ever, right? They have to uh, basically keep both people happy and not out of their own need or desire, but out of the parent's requirement to be validated. Mm -hmm. And so the child basically, one of the things I often talk about, what, what you will see a kid have to do as part of this bind is modify their speech or modify how they talk about their experience when they're around the other parent. So if they go to the parent A's house and have a wonderful time, and then they get over to parent B and parent B says, how was your time over there? And they know there's a conflict. The bind is they, they have to express themselves differently. They have to modify their speech to take care of the other parent's emotional well-being. And, and they're burdened. They're burdened because they can't say, oh, I had a wonderful time at my parents' house because it's going to hurt the feelings of the other parent. Or, or at least that's what the child suspects. Um, and so... Yeah that that's really the nature of the bind this double bind they can't they can't basically be themselves uh and, and let me let me uh let me piggyback on that because in that same conceptualization of like what is the what is this doing to the child it is compromising their sense of themselves and their ability to develop as a human being with a sense of self as a result I can't have my experience, is what Bryson just said, because if I do, you'll be so disappointed in me, I'll have to face your wrath, and I depend on your positive feelings towards me to develop a good sense of who I am. I can't yeah. feel good about myself if you don't feel good about me, right? And so if I had a good time at mom's house, but daddy disapproves of me so much for that, now I can't be a good daughter. I mean, like that is so damaging to because when I when I think about and I'm talking like 100 percent of the cases that I see and I'm dealing with adults who are struggling with something in life, I always find myself back at some moment when they were some young age, impressionable age, developing a sense of who they were and something was reflected to them that said you're bad you're not good, you're not smart, you're not competent, you're not attractive, you're not this. And they have believed it their whole life. And so many of the symptoms that they're living and coming into our office from are from that. So when you ask, what's at risk for these kids? They are at risk of having conflict with themselves that carries on into adulthood and perpetuates the cycle to the next generation. It is truly the sins of the fathers being passed down to the seventh generation. It's that kind of well said. Biblical, Thank you. Like damage. I, yeah. I would, and I would, yeah. So, so some of these other things that kids, I think, really face uh, the sense of self, but, but because the propaganda and narrative against anything associated with the other parent or anything that that parent is associated with, be it their extended right. family, 
religion affiliation, um, traditions, whatever it is, the, the child is also at risk for developing a totalizing worldview of negativity mm -hmm. toward all of those associations. Yeah. And you, you see this where, you know, like one easy example is like, you know, grandparents have always been involved in a loving, committed way. Kids have no idea, really, um, to their benefit, uh, how difficult parenting is when you're doing it alone. And the people that have extended family that help them do that, it just makes all the difference in the world. And so kids are often being cared for by an extension of the family or an extension of the community. And then the minute that that turns, the kid is at risk of losing all of that resource, be it grandparents, aunts, uncles, community, school district, doesn't matter. They get they get sort of turned against everything that is associated with the other parent. And you're basically losing, you know, I mean, if you want to just put a number on it, at least half of what that child's communal and social resources are for their development. Right. It is... Right. I would say it's close to impossible to characterize how difficult this experience is going to be long term on a kid. It's, it's emotionally catastrophic with anxiety, yeah, yeah. sense of self, support team lost, family members lost. It 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 magnifies the, all the loss of divorce and all the changes that the kids going through anyway. Now they lost their grandparents. Now they lost their aunt and uncle. Now they lost their cousins. Um, yeah, right. that really is tragic. And and just to kind of accentuate a little bit, just some of the spiritual part. So I've heard, you know, in my office, all types of stories. I've heard, you know, where mom says that you're not religious, so therefore I can't eat at your house anymore. Um, you know, dad says that your rabbi is stupid and only his rabbi is good. Um, you know, I've seen all types of, you know, dad, mom says you don't know any of the laws, so I don't believe you anymore about what you tell me I'm allowed to do on Sabbath. You know, I've seen these things. And right. my question is, has that impacted the child spiritually? Like, can we just accentuate oh. that? You know, well, and their relationship I mean, with God. And yeah, so if. I was once taught by a guy that uh, the Holy Trinity, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, and your relationship with God, the three primary conceptualizations of who you are. We, I talked earlier that to understand a person is to understand them in a system of network or relationship. So it, an atheist still has a relationship to God in that they they deny that there is a greater, but but the notion of like where do you come from ultimately is 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 one that all humans face in some way, shape, or form. And when you get conflicting messages about that, whether you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, doesn't even matter what what you you know believe in. Um, the it's the conflicting message part. Now I, I'm 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 with Bryson. It's when one of those conflicting or both of those conflicting messages can better be described as propaganda, that it crosses a line. I mean, I, I was a child of the, a teenager in the 80s. We read 1984 when 1984 was happening and um, Soviet Russia was still around and, and yeah. propaganda uh, <laughs> was a very real thing. Now we're sort of unhooked from it. It's still going on massively. But uh, that's it. Social know, media is all propaganda. That's what influences yeah. are. Get, right. Yeah. Right. And you can get into all the social constructionist theories that are out there. And, you know, I, I'm a radio television film major. So I, that's what we looked at. It's this whole notion of there is a difference between propaganda and experience. And, and there is a difference between propaganda and evidence. 
So, you know, I, I think that the kids are getting, what they're really getting is their parents' negative emotion or their parents' emotional pressure. That is what they are getting in the form of propaganda. Um, and, and so their direct experience in the spiritual realm is their parents. Let's face it, you know, you, how do you build a sense of God without a, a parent? You, you have to have someone way more powerful than you in charge of you for a long period of life to even develop a sense of what God would be, and that's your parent. So yeah. these kids are experiencing a lot of negative emotion tackled with this propaganda. They are going to be good fodder for cults. Yeah. That's I, really uh, blunt, but I, I hate to say it. That's We have cults because we have propaganda and cutting off from other sources of data. Cults yeah. cut you off from a, data. A cult is a new family. A cult is a new right. family experience for people that were rejected or abandoned or, you know, sad because of their dysfunctional family situation. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, and I think, right, I think what maybe we're all characterizing in some way or another is one of the real risks, I think, that happens to these kids is they they are having a significant betrayal against their ability to trust in something. Right. Be it a religious institution, a rabbi, be it a parent, be it a school teacher or any other adult that has been able to be trustworthy, this kid will have, if they're able to trust, will have such a high degree of skepticism that it, it will only hurt them in the long run. And I and I'm not saying you trust everything blindly. I'm saying that what happens is without evidence of wrongdoing uh a child is at high risk for having little to no trust in the adults around them which which is you know you see and i are kind of attachment guys and uh in, in our theoretical orientation i mean right. talk about like if you don't have an ability to establish trust from an attachment perspective we call that security your, your interpersonal relationships, peer relationships are going to suffer. Your romantic relationships are going to suffer. When you become a parent, your parent-child relationship is going to suffer. You know, your employment relationships could suffer. I mean, if you don't have an ability to trust in something, then you are going to have a, a, a difficult life at, at key points, you know, key points where you right. have to put faith in something to get through adversity and, and hold on to resilience, these kids are at risk for having very low resources in being able to trust. And that that's a scary thought. Right. We're explaining that. Yeah. So I have two more general questions and then we can kind of summarize everything. Um, and, and my two questions, I'm, my final question is, what's the treatment? What's the process? How do we deal with that? But I want to bridge that with one thing that I think is so important and also so challenging. And that is, does every parental alienation case involve psychiatric issues and a personality disorder or others? And the reason I'm asking that before we talk about treatment is because what you just explained is so profound that you're basically destroying this child. And any normal functional parent that hears that, that's a normal, healthy person would be like, whoa, I need to fix what I'm doing. But clearly that's not what happens. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. You know, Is there always psychosis involved? Is there always personality disorder or other mental issues that are that are creating the parental alienation? So um, uh, yeah, oh, go for it. I was just gonna say, so so my 
my personal belief at this stage in time is no, not always. And, and it's shaped by a few experiences. It is rare, but I have had a parent come to me and say, I have been introduced to this concept of turning my child against the other parent. I do believe I did that. Here are the things that I did. I understand that this has hurt my child's perspective. It's hurt my child's ability to trust in the other parent. And I want to correct that. Now, now that's rare, but I've had it happen like more than once where a parent reforms their ideas based on what you just described, their reconnection with their love of their child and understanding that that most of parenting is a sacrifice, at least I believe that. And so this is no different. You're gonna you're gonna put your stuff aside to better be in a position to help your kid. And that that happens, but it's rare. So so I would say um the prevalency that that somebody has, I like how UC described it, fragility through their own traumatic experiences that predated becoming a parent, whether we call that personality structures, whether we call that a, a DSM diagnosis, um, high anxiety parenting, OCD, whatever, put, put a label on it if that's what everybody needs to do. The, the, I think most of the research still says even compromised parents who are willing to get help are, are better in line to be a good structure for, for a child than not. Uh, there is not much literature that I'm aware of that says, you know, parents who have done wrong should never be in the contact with their children and that their children are going to have better outcomes by being cut off by their parent, particularly at young ages. I'm not talking about 25-year-olds who are making a decision to separate from, from their family structure. I'm talking about, you know, eight-year-olds who, who can't possibly comprehend what that is about. So um, I, I don't think it's always, uh, let's say, a personality issue. I think there's a lot of motivations that happen and a lot of complicating factors. Um, and, and some of them are um, the system, the legal system, and the way right. that attorneys have to function and the way that the courts function. So, so there's too many variables. I, partly, I'm a research guy. To me, there are too many variables that I can't account for. Uh, that appear prevalent in these cases, like court involvement and things, to to for me to reach a determination that there must be some personality issue in a parent. I, I think it can happen outside of that, but I think it is more often that that happens, that, that there is some fragility in a parent that is struggling uh, to heal and right. uh and and sort of contributing to this but when you when you take it from where you just described i think what's hard for us psychotherapists is that in bryson's example there with these people who basically in your spiritual lens would we would say they came to repentance of some sort they they, they came to atonement they, they they came to atone for their sin as it were um we don't know the life event that created that change. We tend to get the people who are not there yet. <laughs> yeah. Are yeah. Well said. Involved, right. And so there's a way that we treat those folks. And when we get people like Bryson said, the treatment's quite easy. Cause it's just like, 
acknowledgement, <laughs> atonement, uh, reconciliation, patience, you know, all the kind of steps of grief that we know about. And they, and they bypass court. They, they're not right. litigating. You right, know, right. There's no litigation. It's always easier to, to clinically intervene when they're not litigating. And, right. and I think that's one of the key things that, we, that we're leaving out of this is like, if you're the parent that's being targeted, you're furious for every day you are missing with your child. And that fury is not something that is pathological. It's, that is a legitimate fury that I would have if someone separated me from my child and any, any of us would have. Um, so I think what, what you're dealing with is you're dealing with all this hostility. And when you ask about how do you treat it, well, the first thing you have to do, I mean, that's like asking, how do you treat a dragon? Well, okay. Um, what kind of a dragon were they located? And, and we, some of these cases feel like you're dealing with this, this giant thing that's far bigger than you with all this energy and hostility. And it's, it's energetic. I mean, you feel it in the room. You get the hostile emails and the pressured uh, letters from the attorneys and the threats and the subpoenas. It, it's so... I think the word that comes to mind is when you have that, you're, you, there's active bleeding going on. So you're not treating act, you've got to contain it. Okay. So that to me, these cases conceptually are containment cases. So like when I was learning EMDR and we, and I got into like really dissociative folks who were in danger of suicide and self-harm and very, you cannot go to certain vulnerable places until you know how the person's going to respond and react. You know, it's, it's a, it's, so I think the assessment in these cases is quite easy. You can see the hostility, but the, the level of containment that's needed is where I think people underestimate these cases and get it wrong. I think if Bryce and I, like Bryce and I are at a certain stage right now, in two years, we'll look back at our current program and we'll laugh at it. Because every two years we do. We, I certainly look back at what we were doing two years ago. And even though I know we were doing good work and we were getting decent enough outcomes, there were still things and traps we didn't see. And every time we shifted something, it's another layer of containment, another boundary, a boundary that cannot be like, that's what you need to do with propaganda. You have to have very clear structures and, and, and boundaries so that when the propaganda hits it, it bounces off. So like yeah. I my view is like, okay, like I'm going to not take every case. <laughs> I'm gonna insist that I meet with you, you know, in a certain way. Uh we, you know, we meet with our clients first and we say, you know, well, we're thinking about taking you on, but we gotta meet everyone, we gotta read these documents, talk to minors counsel, and then we're gonna actually write up something and say, if you want to go forward, here's what you got to agree to. And we mm. spell it out. Like the custodial parent. Don't enter new growth counseling. Stay in your car. Do not, you know, avoid the other parent. You know, like, I mean, I'm starting to put, I said that to you last night very late, Bryson. We're starting to, like, make protocols out of boundaries. Like, if a child is late and not on time and doesn't attend, this is the problem. You know, this is noncompliance. If this continues, then we write a letter. You're not compliant. Everyone gets the letter. We don't send letters to the courts. So we set these boundaries with these folks. Yeah, and we let them know this is where we stand, and um, and alliance building. It's like you you're not really building alliances with people when you're setting these kinds of boundaries. You're parroting them. Um, I mean, that's that's really uh, for those who are listening to this, they might feel insulted. I don't mean it that way, but the level of 
the lack of containment, first of all, the fragility of parents that manifests in the hostility that we see is akin to tantruming. And you do not try to reason with tantrums. You put them in a place where they can tantrum without conflict, without any um, consequences to the environment, to others, or their own safety. And you let them punch it out. This is like 101 stuff. And yeah. that's what a lot of these cases are actually, um, yeah. that's what you're dealing with. So, I yeah. mean, I could, Bryce and I could probably spend 20 hours and detail how we work with these clients and just scratch the surface. But it is about boundary setting. And it is also about refusing to let my sense of self get involved in these people's narratives. These people attack us. You know, children, children who I have never met at my very first meeting with them walk in and are hostile towards me. <laughs> you know, they tell me how stupid I am. I have never met this child. Children generally like me, you know. I mean, that may not come across in the podcast, but children generally do like me. And so you're both friendly, kind people that a yeah, child would so, enjoy working with. Right. Right. So so like these ridiculous things happen in these cases. And I think a long time ago, I used to get insulted, and free, but it's like working with personality disorders. You have to really have this boundary between who you are and who they are and, it, and it's, how you're going to be, regardless of how they are. And that, I mean, that's classic Murray Bowen for you right there. That's yeah. the classic differentiation of self, which actually provides the cure. Are they Only coming in with hostility because one parent primed them like, oh, this jerk is going to try to get involved and you know well well a, a child has to be primed in some way they have to have some sense of where they're going so if it's like i remember when we first had kindergarten the they they had us all come in and the, without our kids and they said look on the first day you got to keep it together you've got to play it cool walk your child in as if this is the safest place on the earth and you have full confidence and say goodbye to them and walk away that's the best thing you can do for your kid if you break down if you start to the so principals know about this, right? Principals know, like, there's a way you can set it up on the first day of kindergarten to really make it hard for your kid, okay? So when a kid comes into my office, been out of shape like that, I know that that parent has had something to do with it. Yeah. I don't know how sense. it happened. I can't figure yeah. out what it was. I don't need to know. I just need to know this kid's biased. Yeah, yeah and and I think, right. And And I think what, um, maybe if I circle all the way back to kind of this beginning discussion or at the beginning of our discussion, this kind of like problematic definition of alienation, not that we all can't discuss it and understand what it is that we're talking about, but, but because it is so nuanced, nebulous, not well-defined in literature or, or um, has strong legal standing in case law that I'm aware of, you know, um, but but the problem, we go all the way back to sort of this discussion of alienation, and that phenomenon, I believe, can happen um, deliberately, like the propaganda machine can be deliberate with a deliberate goal, a deliberate purpose, but it can also be implicit. It can be, you know, a parent sitting at the kitchen table with court documents strewn about the table crying and they don't have to say anything about what is going on they just simply didn't shield the child 
from the emotional overwhelm of being involved in a custody dispute. And they just like let their child see things that the child didn't need to see. And so a lot of things that kids, kids get protective over parents. It's actually quite developmentally appropriate for a child to protect the interest of their parent. Uh, if the if the parent's responsible for caregiving, the child the child needs that parent to be healthy. And so, um, you know, kids often try and caretake their parent when they see their parent in distress. And one of the things that we do or or that we advocate is basically parents having their own emotional grounding point that that shields kids from the overexposure of the difficulty of these situations that adults have to deal with not okay. the child and so basically whatever we call you know whatever amounts to alienation i believe that can happen in an unintentional way but it's a little bit like equifinality it's like it can happen intentionally or unintentionally it's going to be the same result you're still going to have a child with disrupted ability to trust, high anxiety, emotional okay. double binds, parentification, you know, triangulation, enmeshment, the whole the whole nine. And then you have a parent. One parent says, hey, you're alienating my kid against me. And the other parent's like, nope, I didn't say a word negative about you. The child has arrived at their own conclusions. And right. Oh, and I, I mean, simply, that's just a narrative I don't believe because I but I because I don't think that that happens for kids around anything uh you know the whole subset of kids that believe in santa claus it's not it's not because they arrived at that conclusion on their own it's because as right. a structure and as a society we've all engaged in an ability to fantasize about some big guy in a red suit popping down a chimney and leaving you a bunch of presents on christmas morning and, like, and, and drinking coca-cola thing. yeah right <laughs> good point exactly. You know, that like, so um, treatment, you, you mentioned treatment, and maybe I could just dovetail there for a yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, please. Because that's my, that's my final question for you guys. I know we're just about out of time. So yeah, treatment. Yeah. So to me, and, and I think this is something you see, and I, I mean, uh, we, we've had, I don't even know, hours and hours and hours of discussion and, and refinement of this. But to me, I think, first and foremost, it starts with a theoretical conceptualization of these cases that must be systemic in nature. A therapist has to understand that there is multiple things that are contributing to the symptoms that you're seeing within a child. And, and to, uh, and so for us, and we try and assess, we try and be sensitive to all, all the narratives coming to us. But we basically start from a systemic conceptualization that is not, we are, we are not bought in that when a child comes in and says, oh, my, you know, my dad's a really bad person, I'm under no obligation to just believe that story out of hand. I, I like, I, and it's not, and I think this is the challenge, that is not me disregarding what a child feels about an injury with their parent that is that is me just collecting information without biasing myself to one point of view and trying to assess everything comprehensively so our treatment 
probably is better saying that we start with a systemic conceptualization and then we evaluate that out. So we talk to each parent, we talk to the child, we will see the child with each parent uh, to see what that interaction, what that dyadic sort of parent-child relationship looks like. We will give assessment feedback about the family system, communication structure back to the parents. We will ask them if they agree to work on these issues that we outline clearly. Once they say yes, then we initiate uh, therapy, which sometimes is individual at first for the child, like joining rapport, but, but also um, helping kids understand why they're there honestly and openly. And we tell, once we get parental agreement first, then we go to the kids and we do not lie to them. And we say, you're here because your parents have agreed. <laughs> we, right. we, we, it is, it is a both person goal. It is, or both parent goal. It is not a parent against parent. And so if that narrative then changes, like a child becomes under some impression that one parent is forcing the therapy and the other parent is the victim of the other parent's force, we counteract that propaganda. We basically are like, well, look, here's this whole thing. We said, we talked to your parents, they're in agreement. Here's what they're doing. So we, we try and contain uh, those kind of um, blocks or potential blocks. We work structurally. Uh, we work um, emotionally uh, sort of an attachment focused for a child to repair. Uh, we try and address, uh, assess and address three key things, um, which are parentification, basically parents putting child's children in the position of making parent decisions that should be uh, kept for parents only. Triangulation, putting kids in the middle, uh, you know, passing information back and forth through the child, whatever it is, um, and enmeshment, which is basically one parent working to have the child's emotional experience mirror their own emotional experience. And uh, those three things we, we I think, assess and address as, as clinical targets, because without doing that, I don't think you can make much headway in any of these cases. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, that's so thing to share. I know we're running short, but go ahead. Go ahead. A lot of our treatment, while that's that's the that's probably the best clinical summary I'd have to say so far, Bryson. That was awesome how you thank you put that in. Yeah, also um we read the court documents, we talk to the minors council, we basically listen to what the courts have found, we read the 730 evaluations, family court services recommendations. And those narratives also reinforce what we believe. And we figure, like we said, we don't lie to the kids. We also don't reveal all the adult contact, but we then make our therapy include meetup time. We, we separate this from the notion of custody. And we require that, you know, after so many visits of conjoint, we basically have the meeting with the parent. And again, if that's not done, we look at that as a problem in the parent. If the child refuses, 
both parents have to work to make that happen. And one parent can't say, well, my child won't go. We will say, well, then you're in non-compliance. This is a parenting issue for you. You have to figure out how to get your child to go to these and be on time. So we we want to emphasize that the therapy happens in the room, but we also require that very important piece of them spending time and having actual experiences with the other per- parent while this goes through therapy. It's a key yeah. thing. Without that, without that, the gamesmanship can sabotage this whole thing, but they've got to spend. In, we're talking like after a month, you're spending four hours on Saturday, every Saturday or Sunday, whatever day. And, you know, that kind of thing. Very important piece. Well, there's so much here. Um, you know, this has just been so helpful. I, I know that our title of defining and addressing uh, parental alienation was very, very ambitious, but I feel like I got a tremendous amount of education. Um, one thing that you probably hear from a lot of people, but I just want to say it is that both of your passion for what you're doing is amazing and contagious. And it, it's, it feels like it's stronger than kind of the forces of evil, so to speak, and the forces of negativity that you're up against, but you're also both very, very level-headed. And I think that's a really, really important thing for that balance. Cause if you don't have a passion, you're going to burn out very quick, but if you don't have a level-headedness, then you're dangerous. <laughs> so I really appreciate <laughs> I really appreciate that out of both of you. Um, I'm going to leave your uh, website in case anybody wants to get in touch with you guys, um, newgrowthcounseling.com. And I understand that you're both trying to develop a protocol and training, which I personally look forward to attending and you know working with you guys uh, to be able to see that and gain from. So I just wanted to thank you for all your time. And you really, really gave me a wealth of information, again, about that level-headedness, but also about just the spectrum and just kind of looking at a normal, healthy systemic view, which I really, really appreciate. Um, And I thank you so much for for your time and for both of your amazing insights on this very, very complex topic. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, this, this has been a pleasure. So we, we hope your audience gets something out of it. Oh, I'm sure they will. So thank you very much, UC. And thank you very much, uh, Brayson. And looking forward to following up with you guys again in the future. Thanks for having us, Yosef. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Jewish Trauma Network. For additional resources, free and premium courses, leave questions or suggestions, or to support our mission, please visit jewishtrauma.com. And always remember, your life can and will be better.